By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I am joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So we took a little summer hiatus here. I think we've let several weeks pass from our last episode. It's just a couple, right? Yeah, I think actually it might be three weeks at this point. Sorry, guys. No wonder we've had so many emails. I know. I got a text message from one of my close friends yesterday (laughs) saying, when are you recording another episode? And I think we got a message on Twitter. So we're really impacting people's lives here. So our last episode with Mark Brody was incredibly popular. If you haven't listened to that, go back to it. And you want to hear something funny? Go on. What's, what's the funny thing? I played golf with Mark yesterday and spent the day with him. Oh, lucky you. Do you talk numbers yeah. all the way around? It was interesting. We live not that far apart, maybe like in, he lives in New York City and I live in Long Island and he belongs to Pelham Country Club, which is not too far from New York City. And he had an extra spot and he said, do you want to come up and play? And I said, absolutely. So it was really fun. We... We played with another member from his club and the assistant pro. We did kind of like a revolving match every six holes and he tracked all of my shots. <laughs> he was going around with his phone lasering. He's like, "How? where are you, John? He was like asking me where I was lasering it. I'm like, oh God, he's giving me a stroke skiing scorecard at the end of this. I was actually a little, a little nervous in the beginning. We both admitted to each other that we were a little nervous to play with one another. So it was really fun. And then we, we had a nice long chat afterwards, but you know, incredibly nice guy, super humble. I was telling him how I think he's one of the most influential people in golf history. And he was like, no, I'm not. And I said, yes, you are. But yeah, we had a good time. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back to it because you know, if Mark hadn't done his research, I don't think we'd have as much clarity on the game as we do now in terms of, of scoring and, and what we're going to talk about in this episode. Definitely. I'd agree with the influential comment there. So what did you learn from your, uh, your stats and, and that round of golf? So I didn't play all that well. This was my fourth day of golf in a row. I was playing in a member guest all weekend, which tired me out. So I'm making excuses, obviously. I drove the ball incredibly well, like tons of drives in the fairway, like 280, 300 yards. So I think he had me 
even with, I actually hit one in, in a lateral hazard. Even with that, I think I gained three or four strokes off the tee versus a scratch golfer. So that was good. But the rest of my game was not that sharp. So I lost strokes everywhere else. <laughs> you played pretty well recently, didn't you? Didn't you have a tournament? Yeah, I've, uh, I got into the Met Amateur. I shot my first under par round in tournament play and I'm, I'll be playing in the Met Amateur this Thursday at Plainfield Country Club. So everyone wish me luck. Awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Well, yeah. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Oh, we'll have to get, you'll have to play the, the game before we get this podcast out. So the pressure isn't on you. Yeah. I, uh, Although you know the people are going to be looking at the scores. <laughs> it's a limited field event. It's one of the hardest ones to get into. I just kind of caught fire. The qualifier was at my home club, so I had a little advantage and I caught fire with the putter and was able to shoot one under. So I have 36 holes on Thursday. I think there's 70 players who qualified and there's only 16 match play spots available. So it's actually on my birthday on Thursday. So Maybe I'll get some birthday luck. I don't know. We'll see. Either way, it's going to be fun. Did you learn anything from that excellent round? I actually wrote, if people want to go back to my full thoughts, I wrote an article. The last article I published on Practical Golf was comparing a tournament round I had four days prior at Bethpage Black where I actually had a horrible start and played very poorly but kind of pulled it together. And then four days later, I had this this really kind of, I would say my best tournament round ever. You know, the parallel I drew between the two rounds was that I had to deal with extreme adversity in the first round. I, I was, I made a quadruple bogey on the seventh hole and I was like 10 over after seven holes. It was like a hundred degrees out and I was going to some dark places in my head and Beth Page Black can do that to you. And I just kind of recentered myself and got back to my routine and, and committed to, to, taking each shot as it comes and and played really well the rest of the round. I didn't I missed the cut by three, but I, I felt good that I was able to write the ship. Nice. Did you start chasing shots? Yeah, I, I we we could talk about if we get to recovery shots in this episode. I made a really big mistake. I was getting a little impatient after the first six holes. I wasn't driving it quite well. A lot of sloppy bogeys. And again, Beth Page Black can do that too, but I I had a moment in the trees where I lost my composure and I, I chose to take the wrong path and it and I got stuck in the trees for a while. So it was it was not pleasant making a quadruple bogey in a tournament, especially when it was so hot out, it just kinda really rattled my cage. But I had plenty of golf left. So I just calmed myself down and moved on it. And and similar to the other round, I I, I had such a hot start. I think I was three under on the on the front nine that I had a completely different situation where I almost had to be like, oh my God, like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm playing so well, don't blow it type thing. You know, the, I guess the common thread between both rounds that I wrote about was that I used my experience in all these tournaments I've played in to say like, you know what, I'm okay with either result. I can blow it. I can play well. No matter what happens, I'm going to commit to taking each shot as it comes, making a smart decision, going through my routine. That's kind of what I try and hang my hat on, as simple as it sounds. And that day, I was I was fortunate enough to keep it together on the back nine and make make the uh, Met Am. But again, you know, between four days, I had a, a tough round and a great round. But I, I tried to deal with them just the same. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard to just force force a score. You've got to, like you said, treat each one exactly the same. The biggest one for me when I was playing was always struggling with being low 
So I would get, you know, two, three, four under par, and then I'd blow it because, you know, I'd feel that pressure of, oh my God, I'm playing well here. I need to, I need to get in the clubhouse quickly and protect this score. And that was just horrendous. That's exactly how I felt at, at that second tournament because I knew I had to shoot under par. There was only four spots and ties available and about 100 golfers trying for it. So, it, it's it's a very difficult event to qualify for. So, I knew in my head, I'm like, you're going to have to remain under par. I had those thoughts saying like, oh, geez, don't blow it. And I think in the past, my instinct would have been to kind of like protect it and play safer, you know, maybe not hit driver or just, you know, play scared a little bit more. And I kind of told myself, you're not going to do that. You're just going to stick with your, you know, your strategy, what what you know is the optimal way to play. Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And I, I played mostly well in the back nine. I had a couple of three putts, but I had a, I almost blew the 18th hole. I had a really nervy wedge shot coming into the last green that hit a false front and rolled back down. So I had to get up and down. I knew in my head, I'm like, yeah, I wasn't harping on it, but I knew I had to make par there. And I left myself a 10 footer. And I think the old me would have kind of taken extra time and maybe thought I needed to pay more attention. But I just, I went through my routine the exact same way I went out through the first hole and the putt luckily went in. So, well, there's a lesson in itself, isn't it? Even when you have a, an important shot, as you said, most people tend to say, right, I'm going to take more time over this one. But then what you're doing inevitably is you're changing your routine and that sends a message to your brain saying, oh, there's, there's danger here. Exactly. Something's, something's different. You've changed something. Therefore, I need to be, you know, jump in the conscious driver's seat. And so, uh, you know, things can start to go wrong there. You're better off just t- doing the exact same routine that you normally do or close enough. Yeah, I felt that the routine wasn't the reason the putt went in. I could have easily just have missed that putt. And and honestly, it's not an important that that putt was just as important as the putt on the eighth hole or my tee shot on the 12th. They're all independent events. It just, it happened to go in that time. It probably was maybe a 40% chance of going in, but it went in and it, you know, it changed the context of everything, obviously, but it could have not gone in. And, and honestly, my takeaway would have been the same. It just, you know, you go through the routine, give it the attention it deserves and live with the results. And it would have stung, but that's the way it goes. Anyway, enough about that. What are we talking about this episode? Something that you know better than I do, recovery shots. Not specifically recovery shots. We're talking, we're going to start with playing out of the rough. Not every rough shot is a recovery shot. Yeah, that was just a little poor joke from me. I'm just trying to jab John saying that he's in the rough more often than I am. I don't know. I'm pretty accurate these days. But as we learned from Mark Brody last episode... You can hit your tee shot in the rough and it's not that big of a penalty just as long as you have, you know, a reasonable lie and a clear path to the green. That That's a good drive. So, it's okay to be in the rough. But we want to talk about – this is actually a listener question to talk about this and I thought it would be a great exercise to go through is just, you know, when you're in the rough, things change. You have to accept that you're not going to be able to put an optimal strike on the ball and we'll kind of get into what happens differently in the rough versus the fairway in terms of the ball flight. Uh, Things like spin rate and ball speed and and how that affects the ball flight and your club selection and maybe changing technique. But you do have to accept the fact that, yes, these longer blades of grass are going to make the club interact differently with the golf ball. The decisions you make either strategically uh, with your target and your club selection can have a large influence on your score. There we go. Let's get straight into it. How do those long blades of grass that get trapped between the face 
and the ball? How do they affect the ball outcome? I think we now know that spin, you know, if you think about fairway conditions, especially like, you know, when you see guys or LPGA tour players on TV hitting those like very nippy, wedgy, spinny shots, they're playing off very well manicured fairways. So, the tighter the lie, the less ability for blades of grass to get in between the golf ball and the face of the club. So, spin is about friction, how much friction you can create with the club face and the golf ball. And if there's nothing in between the two, you can create more spin. But the issue in the rough is, and we will talk about different lies like a buried lie, an intermediate lie, or one of those, you know, sitting upright lies. No matter what, there's going to be some amount of grass that gets in between the golf ball and the club face, and you just can't spin it as much. Yeah, so the ball will have much lower spin. When we have a lower friction as well, so the grass getting trapped between the face and the ball lowers the friction, lowers the spin. And it also increases the launch a little bit. So you get a high launch, low spin environment with the ball. So what does that tend to do to the end result? I mean, I guess it depends on your ball speed. You know, we could talk about on a buried lie because your ball speed might decrease, but those are conditions for, you know, a flyer. When you have less spin and the ball launches higher, if you have enough ball speed, the ball has less resistance in the air. And, and, and spin... When we talk about approach shots in general, and maybe we'll do a whole other episode on spin rate because it's such a broad topic, but spin is control with approach shots. So, you know, being able to control your distance with your irons or even hybrids, utility irons or, or fairway woods, optimal spin rate gives you control because you want to control the trajectory and how far it goes. But when you start reducing that spin rate, and going higher, you start having conditions that we talked about and how to hit your driver so far. You get those flyers that seem to go a little bit further in the air because they have less resistance with lower spin. Is that what you were getting at? Yeah, it's a higher launch, lower spin. If the ball speed is the same, so if you strike it quite well, it's going to have a lot longer distance. So it may fly in the air farther. I used to see this a lot when I worked at Turnbury and, and used to play around that course. You get in the light rough and it, it would be great for a flyer because, you know, you wouldn't lose enough ball speed because the rough wasn't so thick. So, you know, you could still get that club to move quickly through impact, but you'd still get the, you know, it'd be wet grass that was long enough to get trapped between the ball and the face. And so I'd hit these shots and you'd see it straight away. Your eyes would go and try to find where it would normally be. So, you know, you look up and you think, oh, the ball's going to be there. And then all of a sudden you'd see it another five degrees higher than than you're expecting and it looks like a knuckleball it's just not it's 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 more like a rainbow flight it's not floaty at all it's like when you strike it on the uh, a little bit higher on the face with your driver yeah and so you'd straight away you'd see that ball flight and you go oh it's a flyer and you'd prepare for it to land about 20 or 10 10 to 20 yards longer and then on the links turf because it was hard as a rock, it would just roll out another 30. So it, it would sometimes you'd get 40, 50 yards extra distance on it with certain clubs. It was crazy. Yeah, having a flyer, it's, I think you, you get a lot of, I think tour players are terrified of flyer lies. They're always like looking at it and evaluating the lie. And they're, they're more, I think they're mostly worried about the flyer because they have such incredible speed with their irons, they have the ability to kind of muscle through that rough and create enough club head speed so that the ball 
will then have enough ball speed to launch. So I think I'd like to discuss buried lies first. But yeah, if you catch that flyer, the ball can really go. So that that's and that's one of the the hard things about and it should be being in the rough. It's a little bit of a penalty. You're going to have a little bit of a wild card in terms of how the ball's going to come out. It might not come out hot and then you play for the flyer and then you end up, you know, 30, 40 yards short of the green. So there's a bit of unpredictability there. And if you're in longer rough, then that club head is going to get snagged by the the grass so you know especially if it's going through the grass for a long period of time or long period of space if you're going through say a foot of grass and it's long it's going to really grab onto the club head and occasionally that can twist the club face closed you know that's quite a common thing as well it tends to wrap around the hosel of the club and then that causes the face to shut so you can expect for it to go out more left if you're if you're a right-handed golfer that's not always the case but if if an error with club face occurs, that's more commonly the case. Why don't we start with a buried lie? Because I think there's a lot of decisions golfers have to make when they see the ball deep in the rough. So let's say, you know, I know everyone doesn't have the same grass. I know there's bent grass, what I play on in the Northeast. And, you know, some people are playing on Bermuda, but I think it's fairly similar for most people what you're going to have to do. So let's talk about first, if you walk up to your ball and it is what I would call a buried lie, like it's deep in there. You're not going to be able to get a clean strike on it versus if you had one of those sitting very nicely upright lies. Let's talk about what happens or what could happen with a buried lie. It doesn't always happen, but what you have to play for. Yeah. I mean, that's the first thing I always look at with every shot is what's the lie because that's going to dictate what what you can do and what you should do. If it's buried deep in grass, then I mean, you have to accept to a certain extent that you just can't get clean contact on this. So it's going to have that lower spin. Uh, that's probably the main thing. So you might have to play for a lot more rollout. So, you know, hitting out of this buried lie when there's a bunker short is is very, very difficult or water short. You may even even have to um, accept that you can't get over that water, perhaps. So, yeah, if it, depending on how buried it is, how disastrous or how much grass there is around it, you're going to have to determine whether you can hit the shot you want. But generally, what you want to do is create a steeper angle of attack because that means that your club is traveling through the grass less, you know, in, ter- in terms of feet through the grass or inches through the grass because a steeper angle of attack as opposed to it coming shallow and then it's really going through through a lot more grass. Think of it as an aeroplane going through a forest. So the grass is the forest, the club head is the aeroplane and you want it to crash land a little bit more because that means it's going to go be going through fewer trees. Does that visual make sense? That's how I kind of explain it to kids. Yeah, you. I often think of it. I mean, first of all, what you said about acceptance is crucially important because if you do see that ball buried down, your list of options just got a lot shorter. So I think some people, when they're in a situation like this, I, technically, I guess you could call it a recovery situation. Some people want to get aggressive and make up for their mistake and chew off a little bit more than they can handle. And I've been there and still continue to do this sometimes. But as you said, because the ball's so buried, you want to reduce the amount of time that the club head is interacting with the grass. So if you come in on a very shallow angle of attack, you're going to try and be fighting all those blades of grass behind the ball and it's going to slow down the the, the golf club. It'll reduce swing speed and, and therefore ball speed. So you have to get steeper on it so that it can, you know, get in there very quickly and not not have the club head slowed down or even twisted shut 
as you said, can happen. And the biggest mistake I see with amateurs is they try to do the opposite in this. When they see the ball nestled down in deep rough and I ask them, what are you going to do from this? Or how do you, you know, talk me through it? Usually they say, well, I'm going to try and get under it and scoop it up and out of the rough. No sorry, Bob. And if you do that, if, yeah, if you're trying to get under it, you're basically you're shifting the low point back which means that your club is going going to go through a lot longer time in the grass. So uh, you want to do the opposite. You want to create a steeper angle of attack. And we do that by getting the low point of our swing forwards. So for those of you who don't know what low point is, think of the swing as a circle. Where is the bottom of that circle? So you want to get that farther ahead of the golf ball. So, I mean, there's some things, basic things you can do to achieve that. You could have your weight more forwards. You could have the ball more back in the stance. You could just, you know, think chopping down a little steeper into the grass. That's fine as well. That usually self-organizes a lot of the movements. Do you think that, so let's say I walked up to my ball and I know this now after making so many blunders out of the rough. Let's say I was 180 yards away and for me... To get that out of the rough, if it's buried, I got to smoke a seven iron or a six iron. But the problem is, though, is when you have less, correct me if I'm wrong here, the less loft you have on the club, typically you're going to have a more shallow angle of attack. So if I hit a four iron versus a lob wedge, the four iron is going to come in much more shallow than the lob wedge. Is that a good general assumption for most players? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a longer club will come in shallower, all else being equal. I. <sighs> Yeah, it, I know it's I know it's tough to say for everyone, but I also think that the benefit of what I'm trying to get out is that most people should take more loft out of those tougher lies is what I'm getting at just because that will accomplish because the club will get slowed down somehow you're never going to be able to stop the, the the grass from slowing the ball down. So when you have lower ball speed and you know you're going to have lower spin, you need to get the ball higher in the air. So what happens when spin is reduced, you need a higher launch angle and, and, and a mixture of ball speed to keep the ball in the air. And if you don't, you just get those that duck falling out of the sky. So if I have a, a difficult lie and I choose a lower lofted club, chances are it's going to come out at such a lower launch angle with so little spin, it can't stay in the air. So you, you get some of those shots that almost go nowhere and stay in the rough. You know, your number one priority strategically should be to get back to safety. Can you get the ball back in the fairway with a reasonable shot to the green next versus keeping yourself in the trouble? Yeah, I mean, that duck falling out of the sky shot, that's very common. That's just a sign that you've used too, too low a loft generally because you're looking at two things. You're looking at how is that club entering the grass? So we want a steep entry. And also, how is the, how is the ball exiting the grass? You know, if that ball is exiting with a low launch angle, that ball is going to be going through more grass as well. And that's going to affect, you know, it'll come out with a lot less ball speed and it can even affect the spin rate as well. So, yeah, that's the other biggest mistake. So bit, number one mistake is players trying to get under it and scooping it out instead of, you know, being steeper on the ball. And number two is using a club with too little loft. And usually that's an expectation thing as well. They're trying to hit a shot that's just not possible. You know, I've stood there in playing lessons before where we're, we're 180 out. The ball is just deep in and I'm looking at this with thinking, I've just got to get it up there somewhere. You know, there's no chance of me getting on the green. And I ask the player what they're trying and they pull out their hybrid 
saying, I'm going to try and fly this onto the green. I said, this is just not possible. And they say, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. I said, okay, let's, let's drop 10 balls in this lie and do it. And then after ten, the 10th shot where they dump it in the water short, they go, okay, I agree with you. It's not possible. What should I do? And he's just, okay, we'll just wedge it out or hit an eight iron. That's all you can do from this, this lie. Yeah, I think that unless you have monumentally incredible swing speed and you could get super steep on it, which I think implies that you're a a much higher skilled player. And even for that player, it might not be the right decision. But for most people, if you're in that buried lie, you've got to be thinking steeper. What Adam said is like, you know, sometimes getting the weight on your your front side, um, certainly moving the ball a little bit back in the stance, I think can help with that. But I think most importantly, you should just be thinking more loft and let's get back to safety. That that's a very important thing to consider in a, in a what essentially is a recovery situation. Is what can I do to make bogey here at this point? Because if you try and do the hero shot and you hit that hybrid, you might advance at five feet and it goes nowhere, and then you're back to square one, and then you're looking at double bogey. So that's a way. If you get that buried lie, you have to kind of like change the framework of that shot and say, "I'm in jail a little bit here." Let's reduce the pain on my scorecard. So, I th- I think you can take the gamble a little bit if there's nothing short. Yeah, and you can run it green, on. Sure, then you yeah. can take that gamble because if it if it does that duck falling out of the sky, you know, low spin, lower ball speed, it'll it'll land a lot shorter. So you know, a shot that goes 180 yards will might actually only fly about 100 yards, but it will run out like a, a scalded cat once it hits the ground. So you might get it closer to the green. And so if even if there's a bunker short, you know, in terms of strokes gained, our topic last week, you may be better off in the bunker than you are wedging it out 100 yards shorter. I don't know. You haven't seen my bunker play. <laughs> well, yeah, that's where you'd have to yeah. take individual strokes gained, right? You'd have to say, well, I am I lose a shot every time I'm in the bunker. Um, but if you're reasonable out of the bunkers, it's probably worth it. But the, the biggest issue is if there's water yeah. short, something like that, then that's, that's a scenario where you don't want to take that gamble on. This was another question I think I got on Twitter. People talked about like club face orientation. And you mentioned this earlier. Um, so I, I think the tendency, based on my experience and, and listening to other golfers' experience, it doesn't always work out this way. But if you do have one of those like buried lies in the rough or even fescue, the tendency is sometimes for the, the club face to twist closed. So you almost, I don't necessarily always play for a pull, but it is possible. Like, so let's say I'm in the, on the left rough. You know, at a bad lie, I have to be. This actually happened to me at Beth Page Black that the rough was just brutal that day. I didn't aim far enough right, and, and sure enough, the club face got twisted closed, and I, I hit I hit it back into the rough, and I was unfortunately back to square one, only fifty yards further down. So that was my first double bogey of the day from that. Do you think that's a reasonable assumption for most players that the thicker the lie is, that the more tendency the the club face could get shut down? Yeah, if you get 100 golfers to hit a shot at the rough, the average pattern's probably going to be more more to the left. Generally, just, you know, the club face will tend to close down because it the grass grabs around that hosel. So, yeah, I mean, the the things that I do, it's not it's not such a big thing for me because as we said, I spend less time in the grass in terms of I'm coming in at a steeper angle of attack. So my club head spends less time in the grass. 
So I don't play a big amount of directional change for this, but I might set the face a little bit more open at address. That's it's fine to do that. And I feel like I really hold off the club, you know, like a karate chop with my hands through impact. So I'm not letting that club take take over. You know what? I don't even know if that makes an effect because down at the bottom, that club head is like, or the shaft is like jelly anyway, in terms of the physical properties of the club. So I don't know whether that's just an anecdotal thing, but that's certainly something that I've worked on. I think it'll probably affect how the face enters the grass. I don't think you can really affect what happens after that point. Well, you, you should understand your tendencies. Like, as you said, you're a steep golfer. So getting out of those layers might come easier to you. And I'm the opposite. I'm very shallow with my irons. I have almost a non-existent angle of attack going downwards. So um, for me, I, I understand that tendency and I, I do probably have to play it a little bit safer on those buried lies and take more loft and play a little bit more defensively. And of course, you have to evaluate what's around you. Like if you have a bunker right in front of you, and Adam said like before, you know, that, that that's different than having a clear path. So you kind of have to evaluate what's in front of you. And, and I think value safety first. And then if there's less trouble and let's say it's a clear path down towards the green, then certainly you can kind of try and hit that like almost worm burner on purpose that just has no spin and runs down the fairway. That's okay too. But you make, you, you know, your, your number one one goal is to get out of the out of the jail there, so to speak. I actually saw. I think it was on. I believe it was from Scott Fawcett's decade. There was a really cool video he had of a tour player who took his track man out to practice different lies for a tournament. And he was hitting his seven iron and off the fairway, he was spinning it like, I don't know, like 7,300 RPM, which is, you know, for a high swing speed player is, is probably quite common. But then he took a buried lie and I think the spin rate went down to 1,300, which is just that's ducks coming out of the sky, like, you know, ton no spin, got to get the ball up in the air as quick as possible. And then he actually took a flyer lie where he propped it up with the grass, you know, kind of going down grain. And the spin was still in the 3000s, I believe. So, it was kind of a, a very clear understanding of how much spin comes off when you're in the rough, even with a good lie. So, do you want to segue into maybe uh, a flyer lie now? We'll talk about that and what happens there. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
we have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Yeah, I'm actually trying to do some calculations now on... Uh how much change of distance it would have for different ball speeds. So what was it you you gave me? So I believe if I'm remembering correctly, the player's typical spin rate with the seven iron was about in the low 7,000s. And the buried lie, I believe, was 1,300 RPM. And then the flyer lie was probably like 3,300 RPM, something like that. Okay, so if you've got a ball speed of 120, we just assume that. Those numbers would carry about 165 something like that. If you dropped the spin down to 1300 RPMs, so instead of 163, it's coming out about 185, so 20 yards extra distance just from the... But here's the kicker though, his ball speed went down tremendously because he just couldn't get that seven iron through the rough. And so they tend to balance each other out in that scenario in the deep, in the deep rough. But if you get that scenario where it's in light rough, you know, the, the grass is just long enough, you know, it's maybe half a ball high, something like that. So it's long enough to affect the strike and affect the spin. It doesn't take off any club speed necessarily. Then you're getting the flyer. That's where the flyer comes out. And as I said, just that drop in spin can produce 20 yards extra of carry, not to mention the extra roll you're going to get after it. Yeah. So let, let's talk about when the ball's propped up a bit. I think... In the Brody episode, I'll mention it for the 20th time here, Mark mentioned that in his research that the rough sometimes is only cost certain players a tenth of a stroke. I've seen it varying between 0.2 and 0.3 strokes. It really depends on the player, their skill level, what kind of course they're playing and the rough they're playing. But a lot of courses don't have rough that's all that difficult as the as it should be i mean i don't think uh, most courses should be set up that penal you know a lot of players actually improved out of the rough because the ball was propped up a bit and it was kind of like teed up for them but when you think of how the average amateur strikes the ball their low point is very close to the golf ball as opposed to a pro has their low point much farther forward so pro tends to be you know striking more on the downswing and so when when you take an amateur who's, who's almost hitting up on an iron shot that's really tough to do when you're on the fairway, when it's a tight lie. Even if it's a, a good quality lie, you know, a little bit of a cushion behind it, you're still going to get a lot of fat shots with that. Whereas when you place that same person in the rough, 
now they can get away with that upward angle of attack with the iron. So for many high handicappers, they actually hit it better out of the rough. Because yes, they might get that loss of control of spin, but to a to a 28 handicapper, that doesn't really affect their game that much. You know, it's five yards here or there to a 28 handicapper isn't isn't that much. Whereas to to a pro, that's it's a lot more. So pros will struggle more out of the rough because you know they they lose that five to ten yards of control through through the spin changes through the spin variability. Whereas amateurs gain strokes from the rough in a way by it, it being easier to strike because it's effectively teed up. For Absolutely, them. I think for some players really struggle out of the fairway for the for a lot of the you know impact fundamentals we talk about all the time you know ground strike if the ball's teed up for you in the grass a little bit you don't have to worry about chunking it that much it's a little bit easier to get it airborne i mean for someone like me when i have a ball teed up in the grass and i can hit up on my irons quite easily the problem is for me is like i start to worry about control because you know normal seven iron for me i can fly it you know between 175 and 180 because i'm a low spin player you put me in a teed up flyer lie I could start flying that 195, 200. So I often play for way more distance because I understand my tendencies. I'm probably going to hit up on it more, which is going to launch it higher. I know the spin rate's going to come down. I'm already a low spin player. So that's something I know about my game. So if I do get that flyer lie in the rough, I'm going to factor that into my decision making, playing for that flyer more because. I know if I catch it right, it can really take off for me. But that changes based on skill level and tendency. So let's just recap what's happening in a flyer lie. What's making the ball having a tendency to go a bit further than you know most of those fairway shots for players? Lower friction between ball and club face, which results in high launch and lower spin. And that's high launch, low spin is distance creating. So it's, uh, you know, great with the driver, but not so good when you're trying to control the distance. And I actually, as a kid, I remember a time where I accidentally created this by I was playing in a big tournament one day and I thought, you know what, I'm going to polish my clubs up real good this this week. So I took some furniture polish. That's all I had. And I spent all night making these things shiny as hell. And you know what? Next day, I could not control my distance. It was going a long way, but I could not stop the ball on the green because I just reduced the friction on the club face. And so a fly ally is just a different way of, of doing that. Yeah, spin, like I said earlier, with approach shots, spin is your friend. It's control. It's important for wedge shots. It's important for iron shots. That's how you control your distance and, and trajectory. From a strategic perspective, it's hard to give advice to everyone listening to this because I know we have a wide range of skill levels and experience in terms of scoring potential. But do you think it's safe to assume that if most people have like that teed up ball, they need to start thinking about adding a little more extra distance than normal. And I, I'm a little cautious about saying that because in our approach shot strategy episode, we, we often tell people to play more distance because no one hits it as far as they think they do. So maybe that'll neutralize itself. And if someone actually thought they hit their seven iron 165 and it's really 150, maybe they'll actually hit it 165 out of the rough and that teed up lie. 
Yeah, I mean, flyer lies are probably more of a problem for better players, you know, who are used to striking it really crisply, ball first, then turf from the fairway, and then they get into the rough and they they they've got this grass trap between it. So it's more of a problem for better strikers because it changes the the launch conditions of the ball much more. Whereas when you get an average amateur who strikes it awful from the fairway anyway when they get in the rough and they strike it awful it's not so much of a difference for them so I suppose you just have to look at your tendencies and uh, you know get in the rough and practice it if you can if you if you get chance to get on a launch monitor I do this all the time we get the GC quad we take people over to the rough and we hit a few shots and we see how it comes out so these are kind of tournament prep things that we would do so if you get a chance to do that or just you know even without a launch monitor it's just just seeing how the ball is coming out and noting it down for yourself so few people actually hit these shots in practice and even when they're doing it on the course so few people actually then note down what happened this gets back to kind of a reoccurring theme that we have on the show is that certainly i don't think every golfer has the ability to recreate those rough conditions with practice i mean i I actually learned the game in a schoolyard so i i just you know through trial and error gave myself all different kinds of lies i'm smacking the ball around i noticed what would happen like initially when i learned the game i used to take stacks of dead grass and stack it up as high as i could and and hit a tee shot because i noticed i would be hitting that massive balloon drive but it's more of a trial and error thing and you have to try and practice out of these lies. And if you can't, you know, you, you can't go the stat tracking route. A lot of these stat tracking systems now will show you your your distances out of the rough. So, you can start seeing your tendencies out of the rough. Are you leaving the ball short of the green? Are you hitting it over? And you can adjust. So, it's something you have to pay attention to. You know, I hope that this episode could give you some guidelines on what can happen because you're creating less friction with the ball. Well, here's something extra interesting on that. It even changes direction because when you get less friction, the the ball responds to the path and face differently. So in less friction, the ball is going to come out more where the face is looking and there will be less curvature as well. So say, for example, you're a player who tends to hook the ball a lot. That ball might start out a little bit more left than you're used to seeing. It'd start out more with the, where the face is pointing as opposed to where the path is going. And it would curve less. Now, it's not a huge amount, especially if you're, you know, unless you're creating these big old sweeping draws as a stock shot. It, it won't be that noticeable. But it's certainly, again, just track your direction for rough shots as well because you may find certain patterns are, are different there. You know, anecdotally, as someone who has a decent amount of draw curve on the ball, maybe less than I used to at this point, but I always notice that if I was in the rough, no matter what the lie is, my ability to bend the ball, curve it, is reduced just because you are, again, you're, you're giving up control. When you have less spin, you're giving up control of the golf ball. And especially with the way modern balls are designed, you know, off the tee, we want as little as spin as possible and high launch as possible because we just want the ball going farther. We don't, we don't worry about you know, I want to hit my drive as far as I can, but with my irons, I need that spin because if I want to hit it 175, I want to keep it within that window in a reasonable window. I don't want to hit it 190 or 150. So, yeah, that the curvature of the ball is certainly compromised and something to be aware of. Does it make that much of a difference? I mean, I used to curve the ball a lot. I used to play like a 20-yard draw with a 7-iron. And so, you know, that ball would start 20 yards right and draw in towards my target. 
And if I was in the rough, I remember it, it would start maybe only 10 yards right, but it would just stay there. So I'd end up hitting a block. Exactly. It would start yeah, less I, right, I know. <laughs> but it would just be a block. It just wouldn't curve. And so I noticed that pattern luckily. And so I could kind of play for it a little bit. That used to be my pattern. And it might be the reverse. If you're a, a kind of pull fader onto the ball, you might find the opposite. And as usually they go hand in hand, right? When we're in the rough, there is usually a tree in the way. So we have to we have to take these things into account. And the better quality of strike you get on it, the less this is going to be an, an effect because, you know, you're getting that less friction between the ball and the club face by, by having a better quality strike. But uh, it's, it's inevitable that it's going to happen to some extent. So here's what I think is the more difficult scenario. We talked about the buried lie. I think it's very unlikely if you have a, a tough lie in the rough that's buried that you're going to get some crazy flyer that goes way farther than you imagined. If anything, the shot's going to go not as far as you think because of what we discussed. Conversely, if it's teed up and just totally plopped up, especially I've seen this happen in Bermuda all the time where the ball is just sitting up perfectly, then yeah, you're going to launch it higher and spin it less. and It's probably going to go further for you. And if you're a less skilled player, that could be a good thing because the ball will go a bit farther rather than hitting it shorter than you think. I think the issue is is reading those in-between lies. So when the ball's like kind of nestled halfway down, I was playing the other day and and had pretty much two different results. One of them, I got a flyer, closed the face a little bit. I, I think I had, if I'm remembering correctly, I had like 140 to the to my target and I pulled it with my I hit a pitching wedge and I pulled it and hit it and I flew it about 155. So I got a flyer out of that intermediate lie. And then another instance, the rough just totally grabbed the club and it didn't go as far as I thought it would. So I think the intermediate lies are difficult because you could get either scenario. You could get the buried lie scenario or you could get the perched up flyer lie scenario. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> Other than good luck to everyone? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Now, it's it's just unpredictable, a lot of it. I mean, I, again, I just focus on getting that ball first contact I don't like that club to be going through a lot of grass. So it's it's the same kind of scenario, really. I mean, a lot of it, if I see a lie that I know, you can't say no, but you predict is going to be a high chance of a flyer. So to me, that's where it's sitting up just a little bit in the grass, but there's still grass behind it because that's what creates the flyer, really. Then I just use a little less club because automatically when you use less club, you're going to have a, a slightly steeper angle of attack on the ball. You're going to have more spin on the ball. And uh, yeah, so it, it kind of goes against our philosophy on aiming for the back of the green in that regard. But this is where you have to be dynamic with these things. You have to understand there's a kind of, it's a gamble at this stage when you're, when you're in the rough. Honestly, that that's the beauty of this game is, and, and that should be the case is if, if you don't hit the fairway, which again, is not a disaster. It's totally fine. I, I still, I keep reiterating my, my definition of a good tee shot. If you've advanced the ball as far as you normally do, and you have a clear path to the green with a reasonable lie, that's a good tee shot. But, you know, as your penalty for landing in the rough should be that, that you're going to get more unpredictability with the outcome. So personally, I would, when I have those intermediate lies, again, I guess because I'm, I'm what you would consider a better ball striker, a little more erring on the side of the flyer. 
I would rather... You're a good ball striker, but you're shallow. Your angle of attack is very shallow, whereas I'm a good ball striker and I, I create a steeper angle of attack than you. So we get... You're more likely to get the flyer than I am. Probably, yes. Yeah. So I'm a little more worried about the flyer in that scenario. So I will take a more lofted club. Again, this is one of those things where like it's a bit of a gamble and you have to take into account the design of the hole. I don't think most golf holes have water in front of the green. Some of them do or, or major trouble in front of the green that you have to clear. But you have to start thinking about these things like what what are my variables of outcome here? What's possible? And then, you know, you try and make an educated guess because that that's the best you're going to be able to do is guess what happens in those intermediate lies. Well, I'll have to find this excerpt, but there was a good, I, I believe it was Jason Day. I'm pretty sure it was Jason Day. And it, I think he was on the like the 18th Bay Hill and he was discussing with the caddy and there's the full excerpt of the discussion. And he was in the rough and, uh, you know, he was talking about through his options and he said, well, let's play at this yardage because if it comes out soft, it's not going in the water. And if I get a flyer, it's going to hit that back bunker there. So he was, you know, he was ignoring the pin completely. He was just thinking about these two unpredictable outcomes. You know, as, as I said, even at his level, it's like, well, it could come out soft and land short, you know, get that duck falling out of the sky, or it could, we could get a flyer from this and it goes too far. But if I aim at that bunker, the bunker will collect it. So again, maybe we can link this in the show notes and I'll try and find the YouTube video of it. But it's uh, all these things are things that professionals take into account, whereas an amateur would just go, oh, let's aim at the pin. <laughs> then they, you know. We're trying to get people to be a little bit more cerebral about their games and their thought process and their approach play. I certainly don't want to complicate things and, and have people, you know, yeah, go through. I mean, Jason Day does go through a very long routine before his shots, as he should. You know, listen, there's a lot of money on the line and it's pressure, but he does uh, take a little longer than most. But I think that's a good example is that it kind of shows that you're dispersion cone starts to increase in terms of the possible outcomes versus if you had a, a more normal lie in the fairway for most players. You just have to consider these things. If there's not much trouble in front of the green and let's say there's out of bounds behind the green, then yeah, in that instance, I would take less club because if I get a flyer, I'm OB. If I catch it heavy, no big deal. I'm, I'm short of the green. So I would kind of shift that zone on the shorter side because of that big trouble. Your shot dispersion circle basically gets bigger when you're in the exactly, rough. and 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 always, you know, you're in golf. You're you're trying to avoid the big trouble, the out of bounds, the penalty. Uh, what is it called now? A penalty area. I can't keep up with the rules. And for some players, you know, certainly deep bunkers. So yeah, this is all part of what makes golf great. It's it's a chess game. You have to think of all these things, but. Knowing what the golf ball does out of the rough rather than, as Adam said earlier, just stepping up to it and hit it, that can make your decision making a little bit better and save you some strokes if you can avoid that big trouble. Because as I always say, I'm trying to avoid doubles and worse. I'm okay with bogeys and I'm certainly totally fine with pars. But when you're in this situation, that's what you need to start thinking about is what can kill me and what can the golf ball possibly do out of this lie? And then let's plan on a reasonable target and club selection. Yeah, there's things that we can do technically to to mitigate some of the effects of the rough, like getting a steeper angle of attack in certain scenarios. But ultimately, that even if you get 
technically correct, if there is such a thing, there's still going to be a, a more variable outcome from the rough. It's just inevitable. So your your dispersion circle gets elongated uh, front to back. Yeah, I think as someone who could be a control freak, especially in golf, you have to almost give up control of that scenario because that's your penalty for missing the fairway. So you have to kind of, you said it earlier in the episode, just accept that things are different and make a smarter decision. And, and, and certainly going the aggressive route, and I think more so with the tougher lies, that that's where you can get into those uh-oh situations where, <laughs> you know, you, you hack the ball out 10 feet in front of you, you hit a lip of a bunker, you know, that that's where I think the adding more loft, choosing um, a higher lofted club can get you out of that jail situation a little bit more. Well, yeah, that's the other thing is, you know, if you're 180 out and most people are pulling like a hybrid from that or a long iron, you, you just, it's, it, it's not going to happen. And and people say, oh, well, the pros are hitting it on the green from 180. It's like, yeah, but that pro is hitting a nine iron from there or an eight iron. They're hitting a high lofty club. Re- I mean, there's there are videos of like, I, I can think of one of Phil Mickelson trying to hit a hybrid at a thick rough and it just goes 10 foot in front of him. It's not because he didn't, you know, make a good swing at it. It's just, it was the wrong choice in that, in that scenario. It's buried lie and the ball just gets grabbed by that grass once it exits. Well, that's really the advantage of I'll just try and plug every episode we have now but you know our episode with Mike Carroll for fit for golf and and training your body and and getting more swing speed that's one of the unheralded advantages of having more club head speed is that you can take more loft out of the rough and still get the ball on the green or at least close to it versus a player who doesn't have as much swing speed you know we all talk about driver distance but you know watching Tiger when he came out versus the style of PGA Tour player back then, let's face it, they didn't look all that athletic. He could hit these incredibly towering shots out of the rough that would land softly on the green because he had so much more swing speed versus another player who, who you know, the, the club couldn't just rip through the rough as much and it would get more impacted by the grass and their their ball speed would get lower, their spin rates lower, the launch angle would probably, you know, you get that duck falling out of the sky more. So, if you want to pursue swing speed, that's another advantage is that you can take more loft out of the rough and and get it a little bit closer to the green or on it more often. Yeah, distance is an advantage in three ways. You get it farther down there, so you're hitting less loft for your next shot. You can also swing the next club harder as well. You know, if you're 100 yards out, Bryson might be hitting a, a lob wedge, whereas someone else might be hitting a nine iron. So you're, you're already using less loft from two two regards, and you're also stronger, so that club is probably moving faster through the rough as well. So it's more likely to cut through it a little bit better. And you know, relative to recreational players, you know, I, I don't want to harp on the pros too much, but I think the gains could be even bigger. So it's, it's just something else to think about is that speed, you know, if you're someone who maybe has lost some club head speed as you, as you get older, which is quite common, um, getting some back will likely increase your performance out of the rough. I don't think, I mean, we've done it again. We talk on and on and on. We're an hour already. I know. Is this unbelievable? I knew we weren't going to get to 
<laughs> when I was planning for this episode, I was like, I would love to do recovery shots. And we started talking about it before we started recording. And I was like, there's no way we're getting to recovery shots. I've got shaping shots. I've got fairway bunkers. I've got under tree, over tree. These are all going to be episodes in themselves, aren't they? But I think we've given enough nuggets of advice in this. So, you know, we've talked about how it affects the direction, the curvature, talked about how it affects the launch, the loft. We've got, we've talked about how you've got to think of the ball exit from the grass. It's got to get up and out of the grass quickly. Can't be going through that grass a long, a long way. Otherwise, it's going to fall out of the sky. We talked about the entry of the club head into the grass as well. So, a steeper angle attack. So, it's not going through the grass as long. We've talked about club selection. We've talked about strategy for it, how it elongates the circle. Anything else? Anything I missed in the summary there? Yeah, I just think that this is a, like many other topics in golf, it it can be quite personal. Not everyone's going to have the same swing tendencies. Like you're steep, I'm shallow. That changes how our club head interacts with the golf ball in the rough. People have different rough conditions at their course. Like some courses, the rough isn't all that bad and it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, you're always going to have less spin. I just want to get, I hope what this episode does is it gets people at least thinking about what changes and putting a little bit more thought perhaps into evaluating their rounds after the fact, keeping track of their shots and noticing their tendencies out of the rough. Are you making these mistakes where you're choosing in a hybrid from 190 and, and costing yourself maybe three, four, five, six shots around by just poor decisions out of the rough? Are you launching the ball over the green more often? Are you hitting it shorter? So now that we've hopefully armed you with the information about what changes, you can start making a little bit better decisions to get rid of some of those scores. I think that's my closing statement. Do you have anything else to say? No, other, other than the product plug, the strike plan will go through um, all the the ways that you can create a steeper angle of attack and a shallower angle of attack. So yeah, the, the strike plan, if anybody says, what what product uh, do you have that where I can get more information, that would be my my product there. So, adamyounggolf.com. Absolutely. I think that strike becomes even more paramount out of the rough if you can't control that club face around impact. Just go to my site. Just see what I'm doing over there, practical-golf.com. So, we will talk about recovery shots are so important that we're going to hold do maybe different episodes on that because there are a lot of recovery situations and that's where people don't think of it this way, but that that's really a way to gain advantage on other golfers because so many people just make horrible decisions in recovery situations. And that's why, you know, someone's a 18 handicap and not an 11. It could be that drastic. So we'll, we'll tackle those in other episodes. Either way, thank you again to everyone for listening. We, we are gaining incredible steam here. So many people are downloading our episodes, getting in touch with us. This episode was an idea from a listener. So if you have other ideas or questions, you can reach out to Adam or myself at Adam Young Golf on Twitter. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's that. Yeah. And apologies for the uh, the three-week delay, apparently, of this next episode. But we might not produce an episode every single week. So be patient with us. But the way around that is to subscribe to us. Or I think Apple have changed it now, isn't it? It's just follow, follow instead of subscribe. Either way, just click some button on the podcast. So no, don't click it. You got to smash no, it. Smash it. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have a lot of lawsuits of uh, broken phones. Okay. Well, thanks to everyone. And hopefully we'll see you soon with another episode.